Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the night to be here in this room, gathered with others who have similar mind to study your word. Father, thank you that you called us and, and graciously gave us the opportunity to be here. Father, I thank you especially for the time and the safe travel you gave for my wife and I as we went to Las Vegas. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to minister there. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to uh, have our travel plans go as we had designed them to go and that you would bring me back here in time for this teaching tonight and, and that you offered me the opportunity to be prepared. Father, I also thank you for the care and uh, uh, watching that you did over my children while I was gone. And Father, tonight as we open your word, I pray the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. I pray, Father, that, that as we've studied in the past and as we have learned your word in, in other places and other times, that none of those things, Father, would stand as a barrier to the work you intend to do with us here tonight. Far from it, Father, I pray that you would multiply what we've learned in the past and propel us further, even in uh, the teaching tonight, further toward you and the way we walk and live our lives, Father, closer to you and the way we guard our speech. And, Father, in all that we do, that we would give you glory through what we learn here tonight. I pray that would be your purpose in gathering us. And I pray, Father, I would be worthy of it, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, guide me in all that I teach and that the words that I speak, Father, would be yours and not my own. But as I make error, Father, that you, as you always are so faithfully, that you would correct that mistake and that you would guide these listeners to the truth as you would see it to them through your Holy Spirit. And in all that we do, Father, we give you thanks and we look forward, Father, to how you might put to work what we learn here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 19, we left off at about verse 28. So as we come back into Luke tonight, what we're going to do as we look at these verses is... is shift gears with the narrator, with Luke, into the last period of Jesus' ministry. We can look back as we've even come this far in Luke's Gospel, and we can see, looking back, periods of Jesus' ministry. You can see, for example, early in his ministry when he was focused on calling his disciples to him in the first series of chapters in Luke's Gospel. He was calling disciples ultimately to select apostles from among those disciples. Then there was a, a subtle shift uh, a few chapters into the Gospel, if you were with us back then, when you saw Jesus begin to declare the arrival of the kingdom. And he declared it both in the power of his words and his teaching and also in the parable, power of his miracles. So he talked the power of God and he displayed the power of God, having had the Holy Spirit come upon him for that purpose as the inaugural moment of his ministry. So there was this second period of time when he was working to uh, explain who he was and to make clear that the kingdom had arrived and bring it to the, the attention of the nation of Israel. That gave way in chapter 13 to a new point, a new period in that ministry where the kingdom was no longer available. He withdrew the offer of the kingdom, having been rejected by the leadership of the nation of Israel. And so now his ministry shifted from a giving of the kingdom to the nation to a teaching of the disciples so that they can pick up the work of the ministry in his absence, knowing that he would be rejected and have to be put to death. So there was this new focus in the chapters that followed from chapter 13. Now we're going to get into the last phase, if you will, the last period of his ministry. A period of ministry that's relatively short, roughly a week, maybe a little longer. And it is the, the, the crescendo. It is the point where his ministry comes to a climax. It is uh, essentially this time when he will present himself to the, the nation of Israel as their Messiah, though not to be accepted as such, and he will pay the price on the cross. This is the passion, resurrection, and, and, and post-resurrection appearances of Christ. That's the remaining period now of his ministry. So we begin that today. Really, today what we'll see is a prologue to the passion uh, as he uh, announces his arrival and comes into the city. 
quickly followed by the persecution of the leaders of the nation of Israel and all that comes with it, as you probably already know. So this is the last period of Jesus' ministry. You can begin to understand the attention Christ, uh, or rather that Luke is giving to this period merely by looking at the number of chapters that are involved. If you can count those periods with me, we've already gone through three periods of his ministry, and now we're going into this fourth period, but the fourth period is going to take five of the 24 chapters in Luke. So it's a relatively uh, in-detail description of this final period. Looking at chapter 19, verse 28, we pick up from where we left off there. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethpage and Bethany, near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. You see Jesus continuing his ascent into Jerusalem. But what I mean by continuing, of course, is that back in chapter 9, we hear that he began his ascent to Jerusalem. So here we are now just at the last point in that uh, walk. By the way, this is only the second event now in the entire narrative of Luke up to this point. This is only the second event that you can find in all four Gospels, the other one being the feeding of the 5,000. You'll see more and more common features as we go from this point forward because all four Gospels record his passion, of course. But getting into this moment, there's been only two events that all four Gospel writers included in their accounts. And coming in, the, ascending, the, the, the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem is one of those early two. Now, it's also interesting to note as we pass here these verses that from the Jewish perspective, Jerusalem was the center of the universe and it was the high point on earth. So anytime you walked toward Jerusalem, you were going up. And anytime you were leaving Jerusalem, you were going down. I don't care what the topography of the ground looked like or what the compass said. You always spoke in those ways. That's why you see an ascent to Jerusalem described here. It's because you're moving toward the city. That was just the way the Jews looked at their city. So coming out of what we studied last week, Jesus has left Jericho and the events we studied there. And he passes through this area that the gospel writer here describes as Bethany and Bethpage. Bethany is about two kilometers away from modern-day Jerusalem, which means it would be about a 40-minute walk. In case you haven't walked two kilometers in a while, that's about how long it should take you. Bethpage lay between Bethany and Jerusalem. Now, today there's only Bethany. And so either Bethpage just ceased to exist at some point in history or it got consumed or assumed into Bethany at some point. And so now when you look at Bethany, you're looking at both of those towns maybe combined. It's not clear. Uh, There's been so much history that's taken place in that region of the world since the days of Christ that it's unclear how the borders of those towns may have changed and what went on. All we know now is we have Jerusalem and a short distance away we have Bethany today. In all likelihood, it was in Bethpage that the disciples found this cult that's mentioned here in Luke's passage. In fact, if you were to go to the corresponding passages in Matthew, chapter 21, verse 1, Matthew seems to refer specifically to this town as the place where the cult was found. Bethany, by the way, means a place of affliction, while Bethpage simply means the house of unripe figs. Go, go figure out your own doctrine off that. I don't have anything to offer you, but 
We know that Bethany becomes the base of operations for Christ in the days he's in Jerusalem. Until his crucifixion, until he's actually taken prisoner in the Garden of Gethsemane, he spends his evenings in Bethany. So it's a daily ritual for him to go into the city, teach in the temple or wherever, and then come out at night and sleep in Bethany. That's what he does for the last few days of his life on earth. And if you've ever seen pictures of the Holy Land, if you've ever been there for that matter, uh, Bethany is within sight of the Temple Mount. If you could look out east from, from Temple Mount, looking westward, you would see Bethany just to the west in the hills, just past the Mount of Olives. And it would have been a very, very short walk to and from every day as he went to that town. So as we look at these verses, I want you to examine the events here with me from two perspectives, because there's two different perspectives we want to take to the verses we just studied. On the one hand, we want to look at the immediate perspective, and by that I mean what Jesus was doing in that moment and all that happened as from, from what we know in the text. And then we want to look at it from a prophetic perspective because there are some prophetic issues being addressed in these verses as well. So beginning with, with what I refer to as the immediate perspective, it's important to note that Jesus' last days were filled with prophetic fulfillment. In fact, it is the case, as you look at what he does in the days leading up to his crucifixion, that he carefully orchestrated every step he took and everything he said so as to be consistent with prophecy about this moment. And that is to say he was doing everything he could to make clear that he was the Messiah, that he was fulfilling God's plan for who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would do. And it begins even at this point as he enters into the city. He's careful to observe all that was written about that moment. I think it's fair to say you're looking at a man here who is utterly obedient to his father. And as Paul says in Philippians 2.8, obedient even unto death in all that had to take place. So, again, in that immediate context, he tells his disciples, go to the village opposite us, which we believe to be Bethpage, and walk in and get a colt. And he gives them very specific instructions. Uh, go look for a colt. It's tied up. It's never been ridden before by anybody. You're going to ask for it, and if they ask why, or you're going to take it, rather, and if they ask you why you're taking it, you're going to give them these words. So it's a very, very specific set of instructions. Bethpage, by the way, in that day would have been a very small town. If you know the geography of the area, it would have had to have been small to fit between Bethany and Jerusalem. So it's a, it's a one-street one town. You know, we used to say, my grandma lived in East Texas, one-light towns, one-stop-light towns were pretty small towns. And that's kind of the town you're looking at here, one little square probably with an intersection of roads and a few businesses or homes, not much there. So it's not hard to see that they would walk in and see a cult waiting for them. That would have been fairly easy. It's interesting, if you look at the other riders, particularly Matthew and Mark, they record that there were two horses, here, not horses, sorry, two mules, two donkeys. You have the mother and then the cult, the foal of the mother. And both are to be taken, both are brought to Jesus. He rides the young one and, they carry, and, the, and the mother walks alongside it. Uh, Luke, on the other hand, uh, chooses to only record, Luke and John only record the one and more than likely simply because it really wasn't that important that there was a second one in the, in the picture for the purpose those writers had. It was merely to point out that he rode in on a colt for their purposes. So Luke and, and, and rather Luke and Mark, I'm sorry, simplify the story here to include just reference to one colt. Now put yourself in the place of the disciples for a moment, which we, we like to do around here. Thinking what you would have thought perhaps if you were them. You've been told to go get a colt. You've been told to do it in this very specific way. And you might have assumed as you look at the story that these guys would have been a little perplexed about the instructions. You might have assumed as you read this that they were just you know, kind of puzzling their heads about what is this all about and who's just going to let me take their colt? 
Well, there's some truth to that, but I don't want you to get too far down that road because in that day it would not have been uncommon for people to have uh, mules or donkeys available for transportation for visitors. I mean, we do that today, right? You can rent a car. This is rent a mule. And, and it was not unusual, uh, particularly in a little town like this adjacent to a big city like Jerusalem. If you all know Jewish practice, you know men and women would have been coming to and from the temple at all times of the year, particularly around festivals, though, and in doing so, they might have needed the assistance of transportation like a colt. That would have been very common. And if you know the time of year that we're talking about here, we're talking about the Passover about to occur. So the fact that there might have been a colt available for someone to take in and of itself would not have been unusual. That would have been a, a likely business in that day. Horses, by the way, were extremely rare in that culture. So if you're wondering, well, why a colt? Why not horses? Uh, horses were used almost exclusively for wartime. It would be like you renting a vehicle and you end up with a Bradley fighting machine, right? You would never think that that's what you would end up with. Similarly, a horse in that day was not the normal mode of transportation. Mules and donkeys were. In fact, mules and donkeys were associated with peace in the same way that horses were associated with war. Kings and princes would commonly come to visit other heads of state or other monarchs in whatever capacity, riding mules and donkeys to illustrate the fact that they were coming on peaceful terms and not in wartime which would have been what you would think if you saw him coming on a horse. Solomon, if you want an example, Solomon rode a mule during his inauguration in, in 1 Kings chapter 1. So it, it is the case that Jesus comes in a humble way, and we'll look more at that in a moment. But do not run to the other extreme and assume that his purpose in coming on a colt or a mule was to look shameful in some sense or to degrade, to degrade himself in the eyes of the people. It's not that. He was humble in other respects, but the mere fact that he's riding a colt doesn't bring that connotation necessarily. It was the custom of the day. It would have been very uh, typical. Um, now, in this case, though, we have a colt that's never been ridden on. That's a little different. I don't know how many of you have ever rented cars and you get in the vehicle and it's got zero or you know one mile on it and you realize, I'm the first one to ever drive this. I've had that on a couple of occasions, but you realize that's pretty rare, right? So... It would have been rare in that case as well that, that this would have been a one-time rental, if you will, first-time rental. And it's not just that they wanted to get the new mule smell, you know, when he, when he wrote, when he, when he got this. The issue here is one of, of what the custom was for royalty. In that day, you would set aside an animal for the purpose of use by royalty, and once a royal person had ever sat on, a king or a prince had ever sat on a mule or a colt, you'd never use it for common purpose again. It would forever be dedicated to that kind of purpose. And if you're looking at Christ here now as his role of king, entering into his kingdom or into his city, not to reign as we know, but yet no less king, then it would make sense that he would be looking for a cult that had never been ridden on before because he would want a cult that's reserved for royalty. So he is the first and only one, presumably, to ride on this cult. We don't know what happened to the cult afterward, but, but at least for the time that he spent on it, it had never been used for common purpose. It had been reserved for royal purpose. Now, having said all that, I do believe there would have been some element of surprise or at least a kind, of, a, a kind of a perplexed nature to this request from the standpoint of the apostles, of the disciples here, because of the way Christ said they are to obtain it. At the very least, the fact that they had to go in and just take it with this explanation that the Lord needs it might have been a bit odd for them. And they might have been wondering what kind of uh, answer the owner would have given. Because what if the owner had not liked that reason? What if, the owner, if, you know, what if those words had been spoken and the owner had said, I don't care who said he wants it. It's five you know, talents a day and that's, that's my price. You know, what if he had done that? Well, Luke goes out of his way here to describe how closely these men obeyed 
Jesus' instructions. And that's the point, by the way, of how he elaborates on it. If you wondered when you read it, why is he going into the detail to tell me what they were supposed to say and then tell me again what they said, and it's exactly the same thing. Okay, I get the point. Well, that was a style in that day of writing to emphasize that the instructions were carried out perfectly, that there was no deviation from the instructions. So everything was just as Jesus said it would be. And when they took the colt without offering any payment, Jesus had given them the words to say. They said, the Lord has need of the colt. And when he spoke those words, or when they spoke those words, the owners gave permission. Now, you don't see that here, but if you go to Mark chapter 11, verse 6, you see in Mark's account that the owners granted permission for them to take the colt at that point, having heard those words. So, it's done exactly as it's intended to do. It's, it's given the owners a legitimate reason why the colt needs to be taken, and they acquiesce. They agree to that condition. So, in every detail here, Jesus, once again, demonstrates Number one, his omniscience, which is a fancy word for saying he knows all, and his sovereign control over the world and over the world events. Because both are implicit here. Not just that he would know what would be done and how it would work, but that his statement, the Lord has need of it, would be sufficient to convince the owners that, in fact, that is a legitimate reason to give the cult over. God in control, even, in that respect. And there's an easy lesson, as we move back into the text, certainly in a moment, but it just in passing, there's a real easy lesson for us out of these verses. And that is that God has perfect knowledge of all that will happen. And we've heard that so many times, you don't need me to repeat it, I'm sure. But the fact that he has perfect knowledge comes because he has perfect control. You, you know, People often mix up foreknowledge and God's providence, or predestination is another way to say it, or his sovereign control over the world. They say, well, it's one thing to know the future, it's another thing to control it. No, it's not. They're one and the same. It is by virtue of his knowledge that he is able to control. It is by virtue of his control that he has the knowledge. They are inseparable. And if you want to test that in your mind for a while, start thinking through the, 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 the result of someone knowing the future but not being able to control it. What that would suggest is someone else is controlling it, which would suggest there's somebody of greater power than the, than the one with the knowledge. So you can play with that thought for a while. I don't want to go into it any further tonight because that's not the main point. But it is not the case that you can separate foreknowledge from predestination or foreknowledge from, from God's sovereign control. One is the direct result of the other. They go hand in hand. In this case, we see God clearly at work knowing and, in, in the case of how the owners react, dictating how the future would play out. But even when we question the sensibility of his instructions to the extent as these disciples might have done here. Even when we're in a situation where the instructions come to us and they don't quite make sense to us on their face, we've got to remember he's already taken into account all that we are going to encounter as we carry out those instructions and he's already made accommodation for those circumstances. So though we may not have that picture as we get the initial instructions from him, we can carry them out in confidence that he knows what's going to happen and he's already made accommodation in the plan he's given us so that it will work in light of his purpose. Which, by the way, means that his purpose could be that we fail. Which is always a possibility. I know it's challenging sometimes to consider that, but he may give us instruction that ultimately lead to a failure in some sense of that word, and yet in that failure there was a lesson, there was glory given to him, there was some opportunity created, though maybe we didn't see it, and our obedience was all that he asked us to give him so that he could accomplish his purpose. That's what he did here with the disciples. He told them what to look for, where to find it, and what to say. And his only expectation was, do what I tell you to do. And here's the point that came to me as we were driving and as I was thinking about this. We know he said that his ways are not our ways. 
So we know that by his nature and the difference between what it means to be God and what it means to be us, by that difference, we should be perplexed when we're doing what he wants us to do. More often than not, it should be the case that what we would have done is different than what he's asking us to do, and we have to overcome an inhibition that says, that's not what I would do if it were up to me. Because our ways are not his ways, it should be the expectation that when we're doing as he expects us to do, that we might feel a little out of sorts over it. It might not completely jive with what we would prefer to do in those circumstances. How could we consider an act of faith on our part if we were to comply with God's instructions only when they agreed with our own sensibilities? That isn't faith. If the disciples had decided that Jesus' instructions made no sense to them and so they changed them a little bit to suit what made sense to them, you know, pay for the cult, for example, they would have been sinning in that they did not do as they were told to do and they wouldn't have gotten the result. I'm convinced of that. Only by obedience could they have obtained the result that God intended. So since we know it's God's intention to give us opportunities to prove our faith through obedience, through acts of obedience, he wants to do that, it stands to reason that he must by necessity direct us to go in ways that are not according to our own instincts. If he's got to ask us to prove our faith through acts of obedience, and that's what the scripture says, testing our faith is something he expects to do, and an act of obedience must be to do his will, and yet his will will often be contrary to our own desires or expectations, then it stands to reason that true acts of obedience in the faith will often include doing something that doesn't make sense in some way as these gentlemen might have thought in their own mind. So we, we should take away, at least in this passing moment, an opportunity to remind ourselves that if, if what's bothering us right now in some walk of our life, in terms of obedience, doing something we feel God has called us to do, if we're bothered by obedience in some respect, it doesn't seem like the right course, maybe it seems a bit out of the ordinary to do what we think he's calling us to do, well, that may be the best sign you have that you've figured out what he wants you to do. Because it's in that difference that we are having opportunity to see his will, not ours. You only need to look at a few examples out of the Bible to see that what I'm saying here is, is truly the way God works. Noah and the ark. Joshua and the walls of Jericho. Gideon's 300 men against an uncountable army of Midianites. Esther and the king of Persia. And on and on and on. Every one of those examples, and many more like that, are people doing ridiculous things from a world's perspective and accomplishing God's work because of an act of obedience and in so doing, giving God glory. So the disciples are obeying here as they bring the cult. And then in an act of homage, in the verses we've already read, the crowd and the disciples here take off their outer garments. And I think in the case of the cult itself, it's probably limited to the disciples. I mean, at some point you can't put you know, thousands of coats on one cult. So it's probably the case that the disciples put their coats on the back of the cult and make a, a, basically a saddle for Christ to sit on. But the rest of the crowd, wanting to show homage as well, they take their cloaks off, their outer piece of clothing, and they're laying them on the, on the ground in front of the colt as the colt walks. This is a fairly common way of showing homage. You see that happen in points in the Old Testament with some of the kings as they are brought into power. Those who want to show homage to them are laying their coats on the ground in front of them as they walk. So it's a common way of showing homage to a, to a member of royalty. Matthew and Mark tell us that the crowd that didn't have coats on uh, we're going and cutting branches and laying those down on the ground, which is where we get Palm Sunday from, this idea that we're laying branches down in front of Christ's feet as he walks, or the feet of the colt in this case. So it's clear enough by these acts of homage that the disciples in this, and when I say disciple, of course, I don't just mean the apostles. I'm referring to the large crowd of people now that have gathered with Christ and come up, come up the road from Jericho with him and are with him at this triumphant 
triumphant moment as he enters into the city. These people saw him as king, saw him as Messiah. They're treating him as such. They're giving him the kind of treatment you would give to a king. And this is true, even though the rest of the nation and certainly their leadership did not share that opinion. But the disciples did see him for who they believed him to be, the Messiah. This fact, now this kind of point, transitions us into the perspective I mentioned we have to cover as well, not just the immediate, but now the prophetic perspective. Why is it that these people were so convinced at this moment that they were watching the king of Israel, the Messiah, enter into his kingdom, enter into Jerusalem? Well, based on the day of Jesus' death, we know that this day is the tenth day of the month of Abib, or the month of Nisan, as it came to be known by the time uh, Jesus walked the earth. So this is the tenth of Nisan. If you know your religious calendar out of uh, both Exodus and uh, out of subsequent books of the Bible from that point, you know that that's the point in, in the Jewish calendar where they celebrate the Passover every year. And on the tenth day, as uh, God gave it to Moses in Exodus, on the tenth day of Nisan, they were to take, every family was to take to itself a lamb. And this would be the lamb they would eventually sacrifice for Passover for that family. Um, this month, by the way, roughly corresponds to our April, but not perfectly. It, it, it's not quite the same every year. But on the 10th, the nation was to take for itself a lamb. Now, they brought this lamb into their home and they kept it for four days in their home. And there was really one principal reason they did that. Um, first and foremost, they were looking for any blemish on the lamb. So for four days, you had a lamb in your home, and your point in those four days were to search out any blemish or spot to ensure that this was a spotless lamb. So at the point that you found a spot or a blemish, you would not use that lamb. You would go for another. But presumably that's already been done, and by the time you brought it into your home, it's going to be okay. So it's more ritual at that point. You've got ten days of inspection, I mean, uh, four days rather of inspection uh, for this lamb with the intention that at the end of that Four days, on the 14th day of Nisan, you would sacrifice this animal. Now, comparing that to Christ's entry into the city. During Jesus' four days in the city and in the temple, he was inspected by four groups, as we'll study in the chapters that will come later here as we finish Luke. He was inspected by the Pharisees, he was inspected by the Sadducees, by the scribes, and by the Herodians, which were the, the a group within uh, the Roman authority of Jerusalem at that time, the ones appointed to rule Rome, the Jewish Herod family who was appointed to rule under Roman authority. None of those groups, as we'll see, found any fault with him. So as the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Christ came in for four days in the city and was inspected ruthlessly by these men, looking for any reason to put him to a charge, and they found nothing. They had to eventually conspire and manufacture one in order to put him to death. The 14th day of that week, the 14th day of that week when Jesus entered was a Wednesday. Now remember, in the Jewish way of counting, days began with the evening, not with the daytime. We tend to think of a day beginning in the daytime and ending in the evening, and they have it the other way around. They have it that way, based, by the way, because of the way God created the earth. If you go back and look at Genesis, you know that he counted every day saying evening and morning one day. So Jews count them the same way, evening, then morning then that's the end of the day. So the Wednesday evening at twilight or at nightfall of Wednesday, you're, into the, you're technically Thursday. So that's the fourth day of the week at that point. So Wednesday night is the night that the family in the home would share their Passover meal. 
they would take this lamb in, that they had brought into their home and they would kill it according to the law and then they would have their Passover, their Pascal meal in the home that night. So if Jesus walks in on a Sunday, four days later, it's Wednesday night. So you're looking at your calendar going, no, Steve, Wednesday's only three days later. Well, remember, by Wednesday night, you've started the fourth day in the Jewish time, in the Jewish calendar. So that's technically Thursday night. So that would have been the night the families in that city would have been slaying the lambs that they had called into their own family, brought into their own family for that observation. That is also the night that we will study here in chapter 20, uh, or in 22 rather, where Jesus has the Last Supper. So Jesus has the Last Supper Wednesday night, Thursday in other words, the fourth day. And what does he say to the disciples? This is my body, broken for you. So the disciples had their Passover meal with Christ, and in effect, they ate him. He was the lamb for that moment, for that meal. He was the lamb for them on Thursday night. Or Thursday, it would have been Wednesday night, which is the beginning of the Thursday, sorry. I'm trying to put it into a calendar day for you so you can kind of get the feel for it. Because what you'll find some people saying is, no, you know, Jesus had you know, the, the, the Passover meal that the disciples had came too early. Sometimes you'll see people saying that that it didn't happen on the appointed day. It should have happened on Thursday. But it did happen on Thursday. Wednesday night being that Thursday. So it happened on the, appro- on the exact time it should have. Now, if you're wondering here about the lamb sacrificed on the cross, well, you have to understand there were actually two lambs put to death on a, on a typical Passover. You had the lamb for the family that was killed and eaten on that night, on that Wednesday night. But then you had one special lamb that a, the priesthood would bring into the city and sacrificed publicly, and that was the national lamb. That was the one that was done on behalf of the nation. That always took place 9 a.m. Thursday, if you will, or on the, next, on the, the morning of that same fourth day, 14th day. So the 14th day began at Wednesday night, but 9 a.m. Thursday, you're still in the 14th day. So it's all the 14th day, but you have two different sacrifices. One that took place in each family for the purpose of the family. Then a national one that took place at 9 a.m. on that next morning, that, took, that was for the purpose of recognizing the Passover nationally, sort of a national memorial. Well, that 9 a.m. corresponds to the time Christ was put on the cross. So Christ, in this Last Supper, was giving himself up to the disciples and saying, this is my body, eat of it. And then the next morning, he himself was sacrificed by the priesthood, if you will, in that, in that visible way at 9 a.m. Ironically, even as the priesthood in that day was sacrificing the other Passover lamb back in the temple, for that day's Passover celebration, Jesus himself was being put up on a cross to do it for the sake of all men. And that was the connection prophetically that we're going to continue to study as we look through the rest of these chapters. I wanted to give you that upfront taste of it tonight so that you can begin to see some of the parallels even now. Because Jesus is going to walk in the city, or ride into the city, I should say, on this colt in much the same way that they would have brought in the lamb that day for the national celebration. They would have brought in that lamb that would have eventually been sacrificed at 9 a.m. on the 10th day. So somewhere around the events of this day, they've also brought in that lamb, just as he has come in. He's mirroring that process. And as I said, we're going to study more of these connections as we go through chapters 22 and beyond. The second way, so the first way in which Christ begins to fulfill prophecy here is that he is coming into the city in the way that the sacrificial lamb would have come into the city for the purpose of Passover, because he is to fulfill that picture perfectly. The second way in which he rides in to fulfill prophecy is in the manner in which he entered, riding on a colt. Riding on a colt was itself 
a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy about how the Messiah would arrive. It's in Zechariah chapter 9. Uh, it's uh, two sets of verses there, 9 and 10. Chapter 9, verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's how Zechariah in chapter 9 uh, announced to the nation of Israel they should expect to see their king, their Messiah, arrive. Look at some of the attributes there he mentions. He is just, perfect in justice. He is endowed with salvation. That, that phrase, endowed with salvation, it's really just one word in the Hebrew, yasha. And that word has a variety of meanings, but its most literal meaning is to deliver or to save. So you could translate it, he is just and coming to save. Or just and delivering salvation. So here we see, and then finally we hear him said that he's going to be mounted in a humble way on the colt of a donkey. So all of that is fulfilled by Christ's entry that day. Now it's interesting though, if you were to stay in Zechariah one more verse, in verse 10, and you were to look at the next verse that follows, it says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Now that verse is also talking about the Messiah's arrival. You notice some of the details there, of course, a dominion from sea to sea covering the whole earth. But it's also clear enough that these things have not happened yet. I mean, we notice the details, for example, that war is being put to an end. That's what he means by saying that the chariot is cut off from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. You notice here again, horse is closely associated with war. The fact that horses are cut off is a, is a way of saying no more war. And that there's no more chariots and the bow of war will be cut off. Then he goes on to say that Messiah will speak peace to the nations. He will establish his dominion from sea to sea. These things have not happened yet. They certainly didn't happen in Jesus' arrival on that day. What you're looking at, if you were to look at those two verses together, Zechariah 9, 9 and 9, 10, is a good example of the law of double reference in Scripture. And the law of double reference simply says this, that you can have two verses that are speaking side by side about two different events in time. They both reference the same person, but they speak of two different moments. We know now, looking back into these verses, knowing what we know since, knowing what we know from the New Testament particularly, we can understand them now to be a reference to his first coming in verse 9 and to his second coming in verse 10. But in the way they were originally given, and without all the background that came later, you wouldn't have known that. That, that detail was hidden in the way God provided these prophecies. It would have been seen as a continuous set of events. He comes and he establishes his kingdom. And there's more than just this to go on. There's several other places in Scripture where you see, particularly in Isaiah or in the Psalms, where you see prophetic statements about Christ's coming. They meet up in a way that gives the impression it's one coming, but really you know now it's two. And by knowing that it's two, we can see the difference. We can understand the plan of God in how he's working this out. But in the day that it happened, or, or before we had this insight, you would have been perhaps reasonable to assume it was all going to happen at once. Which is why, in part, some of the leadership had trouble accepting that Christ was going to come and do what he did. Also, why some, after his death, were confused about why he had to die. The assumption was, he's here now, peace will reign. So Jesus enters Jerusalem as God promised. Luke 19.37 then picks up, and then we see what happens next. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now Luke describes Jesus' approach to Jerusalem as he arrives from, uh, as coming from the east, down the Mount of Olives, and into Jerusalem. And if that's the case, he had to have arrived through what we call the beautiful gate, or the east gate. Because that's the only gate that faces the Mount of Olives at the place where Jesus is said to have arrived. And if you, again, if you've ever been there, the Mount of Olives, it's just a steep incline. Very quickly, you're back coming up the other side toward the Temple Mount. There's no real space there. I mean, you could almost throw a rock across from one side to the other. And the gate that's there now, if you're familiar with it, that gate now has been com- completely bricked up and walled off. It's not a gate anymore. It's, you can just see the outline of where a gate used to be. In the 4th century, the Muslims who occupied the city uh, built a, a wall in the gate to completely close off that wall so that no one could enter from that side. And then on top of that, they put a cemetery directly in front of that gate. So the land now in front of that gate is a, is a cemetery that's been used for centuries. Why did they do this? Well, the reason they did this was because they believed or at least feared a biblical prophecy about the coming Messiah. They, Zechariah 14 goes on to describe how the Messiah would enter into Jerusalem from the east. And knowing that he is intended to arrive from the east, uh, by the way, you can also see this in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 2, knowing that and, not, and knowing that they did not want the Jews to get the city back, much less for their Messiah to come in and reign, the Muslims decided, well, we'll fix this Messiah. We'll just wall up his entrance. And we'll put a, a cemetery in front because no good Jew would ever defile themselves by walking over a cemetery and thereby become unclean and not be able to enter into the city. So you, can't, you can only become clean again by waiting seven days, so you could never get past the cemetery to get into the city because you could you'd constantly be defiled and have to stay outside for seven days. So they thought they had fixed the Messiah. No more chance of a Messiah entering. We've, we've taken care of that problem. Well, the whole thing is really quite comical when you think about it. First of all, they missed the coming. I mean, he's already done this entry. He's come in already. The first coming's over by the time they start building this wall. So they've already missed that opportunity. That those prophecies have already been fulfilled. And we know from Revelation that his second arrival doesn't come like his first arrival. It does involve the city, certainly. It does involve coming at one point to the Mount of Olives and then beyond. But he comes on a white horse. And he comes with the power to slay all his enemies simply by the word out of his mouth. The efforts here that they've made to try to keep him out are completely pointless and they prove that they completely misunderstand who the Messiah would be. They assume him to be nothing more than a man, nothing more than a conquering king, much in the same way that those in Jesus' own day had assumed the Messiah would come, like a David or like a Solomon, not God himself. And so a man can be stopped by a wall, but not God. It demonstrates how they didn't even understand who they were facing here. But it also gives you a little insight into the the nature of depravity of the human heart. Because it's a good example of what drives ungodly men. In fact, it drives the devil himself. We have an arrogance and a pride within us as mankind that believes that we can be equal to God, that we can can thwart God. Through the efforts of our own hands and and, and capabilities, we can stand up to the maker of the heavens, the maker of, of the universe. Even if they didn't realize that the Messiah would be God, they still knew it was God saying he would send a Messiah. And in that, they thought they had the power to stop him. So although it's comical for us as we know Scripture and as we understand our God, it's a good insight into the thinking that goes with ungodly men. That they have the ability to stand up to God, to stop him. 
Well, now Jesus begins to enter into Jerusalem. And as we see in verse 38, the disciples and the crowd that are surrounding Jesus at this point, they all begin to declare, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're speaking here from Scripture to declare the truth of who Jesus is. And and the verses they're quoting here come out of a Messianic psalm, out of Psalm 118. I want to read you a few verses out of that psalm. And I want us to look a little bit at what this verse means or what what this statement actually means. Psalm 118 Verse 19, Open to me the gates of righteousness, I shall enter through them, I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm, as I said. And in these verses, we have a prophetic picture of how the nation, the nation of Israel, was to receive their Messiah in his day. And I want you to look at how these verses describe that moment. You see them. In verse 19 and in verse 20 of Psalm 118, you hear that the righteous will enter through the gate of the Lord, and you have become my salvation, and you are the stone the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone, in fact. This is referring, of course, to the fact that Christ as the rock, as the cornerstone for our faith, was rejected ultimately by the nation of Israel through their leadership, the chief cornerstone being rejected. And this is the Lord's doing. It goes on to say, marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. All references to the fact that this is the day that the Lord had appointed for his Messiah's arrival. And then in response to that day, we hear the people that are represented in this psalm, the the voice of the nation saying, blessed is the name of the Lord. Now, if you are uh, attentive, if you've been in this study for a little while, you probably recognize that verse because we've seen it before in this study. The, the phrase, blessed is the name of the Lord, or blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Where we heard that before, of course, was in chapter 13. So I want you to turn there now with me for just a moment. I want to go back to that chapter at the very end of chapter 13, because in those verses that ended that chapter, we see this same phrase, blessed is the he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we'll go back here to Luke chapter 13, verse 33. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Back in chapter 13, when we studied this earlier this year, Jesus, we saw at this point, was withdrawing his offer to the nation for the kingdom. So Jesus had come. He had declared the truth of him, uh, of himself as the Messiah. He had declared that the kingdom was at hand and that it was re- ready to be received. And if the nation received it, it would have been set up in his day. But since the nation rejected him, and and principally here we're talking about how the the leaders of the nation of Israel responded to him, since they rejected him, he withdrew the offer. Here in chapter 13, he said he would not return to them. Their house is being left to them desolate, and he is not going to return to them until the whole nation of Israel 
receives him in this way. Back when we were in chapter 13 uh, in January, we studied then that in Zechariah 14, you see the actual event that's described here at the end of chapter 13 of Luke. You see the moment when the nation of Israel, in some future day, is brought to their knees by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And what we understand is going on in this moment is that the, the nation of Israel, in that future day, as it's constituted on that day, all men and women of the nation of Israel in that day, will at one moment come to a recognition that Christ was in fact the Messiah and they will mourn over the fact that he had died under their hand and then as the nation now comes to that recognition they will call out for him and they will use this messianic phrase out of Psalm 118. They will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That phrase was the phrase God had appointed through his word to be the welcoming phrase for the Messiah as he would enter into his kingdom. And because it was not the case that Jesus was received by his people in his first coming, he sets up this requirement, this standard now, for what, will, what it will take for him to return to them in some future day, to ultimately fulfill the promises granted to the nation of Israel by God through the covenants. Those, nation, those promises are still to be fulfilled to the nation that one day they will be set up as the chief nation of the world above all other nations, that the, the Lord will rule from Mount Zion with the nation of Israel over the whole earth. That is yet to be seen. And that day will not be inaugurated until the nation of Israel receives their Messiah, unlike what happened in Jesus' first coming when they rejected him. So when we look now in chapter 19 at the reception that Christ is receiving upon his arrival in Jerusalem in this scene we've been studying, we notice now that the crowd, the disciples in this case, are, are announcing his arrival with this phrase, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I want to distinguish with you for a moment this moment in chapter 19 from what Christ has said in chapter 13 would be necessary for him to return. The crowd here around him now in this moment in chapter 19 of Luke are the disciples. And, and of course, by disciples, I don't just mean the apostles. We're talking here about all those of faith who had been following Christ through the city of Jericho and up the road into Jerusalem. So it's a large crowd of disciples, and they are all speaking in unison here Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. However, the nation as a whole is not receiving him here. Uh, Though the disciples are receiving him and they're declaring this, certainly not the nation of Israel as a whole. The leadership certainly is not receiving him as the Messiah. And so, in this moment, you do not see the fulfillment of what Christ proclaimed back in chapter 13. That is still yet to come. What he intended back in chapter 13 was that the nation, their leadership and the nation as a whole, would receive him. And what's going on here in chapter 19 does not fit that pattern. It is merely the disciples themselves declaring who they know Jesus to be. They recognize him as the Messiah and they are declaring him as such in this moment. In fact, if you just look a few verses later in chapter 19 of Luke, you see the leadership itself, the Pharisees in this case, reacting to hearing the disciples making this statement to Jesus. In verse 39, the Pharisees ask Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Now, What they want him to do here is to stop the crowd around him, stop these disciples around him from making this statement out of Psalm 118 because they recognize that this is a messianic statement. The Pharisees understand that what the crowd is saying by their words is that this man is the Messiah and he is coming into Jerusalem to take his seat on the throne and to be king. Now we know that Jesus was never intending to do that in this 
moment he was coming in to ultimately die on the cross. But his disciples only thought at that moment that this was the king arriving. So they were doing what they believed scripture expected them to do as they declare his arrival. And the Pharisees saw it the same way, only they didn't believe it. And they were uh, incensed that this crowd was willing to give Christ, give, to give uh, Jesus the credit to be the Messiah. They saw it as a blasphemous statement for the crowd to declare that he was the Messiah. And they believe, as the scripture would expect, that these phrases, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would be an indication that this is the Messiah. So they tell Jesus, stop your people from calling you the Messiah. And in that, you can see the leaders were set against Christ. They gave him absolutely no credit, as uh, no possibility that he was the Messiah. They saw him only as a fraud, and they were upset that the uh, disciples were declaring him to be the Messiah. And yet, I also want you to take note that the disciples here, as they declare that Jesus is the Messiah through their statements, through their quotation out of Psalm 118, they're doing it for good reason. Scripture tells us, Luke says there in, in, his, uh, in verse 38-39, that they do it because of all the miracles they've seen. So this is not a crowd who's simply playing along with a part. They're not just going through the motions here because this was the ritual or this was something they had been told to do. No, they believe what they've seen in Christ is to be proof that He is the Messiah. And they are, out of the, out of the joy of their heart, declaring what they know to be true about Him. And Scripture is not being manipulated here. It's not that they're playing an act. Scripture is being fulfilled in that what God said would happen, of course, as Christ entered, would in fact happen through their mouth. That's why when the Pharisees turn to Christ and say, rebuke your disciples, I love his response. He turns back to them and he says, it can be no other way. He says, if those disciples had somehow, in some way, been disobedient and remained silent in that moment, God's word would have had no less power. God's word had declared that in his day, the Messiah would be received gladly, that he would be received with praise. So God's word would not be broken. It cannot be opposed. It can't be voided. So Jesus tells these leaders there's no possibility that this praise could not be heard because if it were possible for Christ to enter into the city without that praise, it would be God's word being made void, which cannot happen. So he tells the leaders that even if human obedience had failed in that moment, God would have made a way for himself nonetheless. And it would have been the case that if necessary, even the stones themselves would have cried out that phrase in order for God's word to be held true. It reminds me of Jesus' words to the Pharisees back in Matthew in chapter 3, verse 9, when he's talking to the Pharisees about how they cannot rely upon the fact that they are born of the line of Abraham to save them. And he says in, in chapter 3, verse 9 of Matthew, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And in that moment, of course, he's reminding them that God was fully capable of raising up new children for himself anytime he needed. That they can't simply look back on their physical lineage back to Abraham as some special attribute that saves them from, from uh, their own sin. It was nothing special from God's perspective that they were born out of Abraham's line. God could raise men up at any point. Remember, he raised Adam from the dirt to begin with. And I think that's a similar kind of, of view in, in the verses that we read out of Luke here today, that, that Jesus is saying that it is not the case that these men and these women in their praising of Christ were in some way making him the Messiah. No, quite to the contrary. He was the Messiah and therefore there was going to be praise whether it came out of their mouth or came out of the stones themselves. It's a good reminder, I think, for us tonight that 
God's Word is the most powerful force in God's creation. And it will always have its intended effect. Even if these people, as I said, had never spoken it, it would still have been spoken somehow. I think that's an encouragement, not just in my own personal walk, and I, I assume as well in yours, but it's also an encouragement in the ministry that, that we try to conduct, that, that we know that God's Word, when it's proclaimed, when God's Word goes out, as Scripture says, it will not return void. It will not return empty. It will not return without accomplishing the purpose that God has set forth in its, uh, in the, that God has set for it. And so when we have the confidence to proclaim God's Word and to live according to God's Word, we should also understand that that means we'll have the confidence to see the result God intended for it. Even if we are in some way doubtful about whether we're going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, if we trust that His Word can do the work and not our own power, then we have all the confidence we need. Because it is the case, even as, as we see in these verses here, that God could cause stones to cry out in glory for His Son if that were the only opportunity He had, if that were the only avenue available. It is He that is the power, not us. It is His Word, not ours. So moving on in Luke chapter 19, let's read uh, four more verses for the night. Uh, we won't quite finish the chapter tonight, but we want to just cover these last few verses before we transition into 20 next week. Verse uh, 41, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We'll come back to these verses next week. As I said, we're going to transition out of the very end of chapter 19, even as we go into chapter 20 next week. But for today, I think it's sufficient just to look at some of the general meaning and the intent here of what Jesus is saying. Uh, as Jesus approaches the city, and, and you have to have a picture in your mind here, that on the east side of Jerusalem today, as it was in that day, the, the Mount of Olives rises up very quickly after you leave the city. It, there's just a little ravine. There's just a little valley between the city and the Mount of Olives. And as Christ is walking down the Mount of Olives and preparing to enter into the city through the Golden Gate, through the East Gate, uh, he's said to be crying here and weeping over the city. And can you imagine this scene if you had been one of the crowd there, everyone rejoicing and declaring that he's the Messiah and celebrating his arrival and laying branches in front of his feet and, or in front of the donkey. And he's walking or he's riding on the donkey as he comes down into the city and he's weeping. He's truly mourning for this city. And if you've been there or if you've seen pictures of the, of the Holy Land at this point coming down off the Mount of Olives, it's a, it's a nice vantage point from which to view the city. So it's probably the case that as Christ was sitting on the colt and, and as he was being uh, taken down the hill, the hillside of the Mount of Olives, he could look out over this whole city and all the people that were in it and the children playing in the streets and the merchants selling their wares and all that was going on around the Passover uh, celebration that was about to ensue. And he recognized for the sake of that city what was in store for it. He knew the future that was now condemned to occur because of the city's rejection of him. He pronounces in these verses the judgment that the city and the nation itself would experience in response to their rejection of him back in chapter 13. So in chapter 13, he withdraws the kingdom for, from them, from that, from that generation, and declares it to be off limits, if you will. And here in this moment, he declares the judgment that now must 
ensue because of their earlier rejection. And Jesus describes these events in such a way that we know specifically what he's referring to here. These are events that will take place some 40 years after his crucifixion. In about A.D. 70, you may know the story as uh, Roman soldiers led under Titus the general lay siege to Jerusalem uh, in response to a rebellion of, of Jewish zealots. Eventually, they overrun the city. They break through the walls. They level it, as Jesus describes here. They, they, they essentially reduce the city to ruins. And in the process, they murder most of its inhabitants. Some estimate that as many as two million men, women, and children in the nation of Israel were murdered as a part of that siege. And it really required till that city was in ruins, and really the nation of Israel never occupied that city again in any significant number until 1948, when it became a nation after World War II again. So you can see the extent of that judgment lasted for some time. Uh, we're going to take a closer look at these events, as I said, when we come back and, and we look at these verses as we transition into chapter uh, 20. And then we're also going to look at this whole series of events that surrounded uh, the destruction of uh, Jerusalem in AD 70 when we look at chapter 21. Uh, I mentioned uh, chapter 21 a couple weeks ago because it's chapter 21 of Luke that really brings us back into a discussion of end times, of eschatology. And it's going to be in that discussion we'll have another opportunity to revisit this event. For now, though, I, I want to just leave us with one thought as we close out for the day, and that is that there's always been and always will be a consequence for rejecting God's offer for the rescue that is possible through Christ. And on an individual basis, you and I, as we uh, may hear the gospel, as someone may bring us the good news of Christ's work on the cross, of the salvation he offers to all men, uh, rejecting that offer, just as the nation rejected it in Christ's day, carries dire consequences. And the nation experienced that as a whole in A.D. 70, but on an individual basis, it's experienced any time an unbeliever goes to the grave. And I hope as it would do for you as it does for me, it would motivate us in our walk as Christians and our witness as Christians to proclaim the good news, to not be shy, to not be hesitant, to be obedient, to, to be more like those disciples when Christ said, go into the city and find this cult and here's what you will say and here's what you will do. And without second guessing, without questioning whether or not those instructions are the right ones, we simply take what we're told and we do as the Master has expected us to do and we let His Word do the work. And in our own lives, that may come down to quiet witnessing in our own walk and in the way we live our life. But, but ultimately, I think for all of us, it comes down to a verbal witness, to preaching, to teaching, to do, proclaiming the good news of who Christ is and what he's done for each of us. And I pray that what we've studied here tonight would help uh, motivate us toward that end as God has called each of us. Let's go to prayer and uh, we'll end the night.